Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the final war, the war of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, man was the lord of the earth. He made him an old skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more, penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable. I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though, never fully realise why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. Indeed, and that was the opening passage of the very first H.P. Lovecraft story, Dagon. It's been a while since I've done one of these, um, and perhaps this one is long overdue. I've been calling them heavy metal heroes, something like this, something a bit fatuous and silly. But maybe it's time to take a look at the life and work of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. There's few people whose creative work casts more of a shadow over heavy metal um, and, of course, modern science fiction and horror than H.P. Lovecraft, than Howard Phillips Lovecraft. So let's take episode 81 as a look back at his life and work. Like I said, it's been a while since I did one of these deep dives into what I've been randomly calling uh, a heavy metal hero. Is this laziness on my part? Most likely, as it requires, obviously, a little bit of study, a little bit of uh, note writing, a little bit of recollection, a little bit of dusting off old journals and books, um, not only in my um, grey matter and subconscious, I suppose, 
and dredging my memories of the past, but also, in the very real sense, pulling out some old H.P. Lovecraft books and taking a look for the first time in quite a while. So let's grasp the nettle and get into Howard Phillips Lovecraft. This is Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill. This is episode 81 as we make our way towards the big one zero zero, still on season one. I may hasten to add, I swore that I would not move on to season two until um, the emergency, as we have been calling it, uh, was over. And with no sign of that, we'll stick to season one, I think. And I have a feeling we might be in season one for quite a considerably, well, for a longer time than you might have thought, although not than I might have thought. Anyway, so Howard Phillips Lovecraft. This is Agitators Anonymous. The show is sponsored by MetalBlade.com. Use the promo code AAPODCAST to get 10% off only in North America. Go and take a look. And Eisenwald Records, www.eisenton.de in Europe and .com in America. In America. Use the promo code also AAPODCAST and you can get free shipping. It's worth a look. As believe me, shipping is an exorbitant cost this moment in time. So getting free shipping is quite a big deal. Well, now, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, few writers, if any, I suppose, rather than or other than Tolkien, I guess have captured the imagination of metal bands in quite the same way. The list of songs are endless. Um, of course, most famously, I suppose, it was Metallica who started the ball rolling, although there were obviously references in the 1970s, which I'll get into maybe later as we uncover Lovecraft's um, post-cultural revolution of all things 1960s and 1970s uh, during the counterculture. But um, for most people, it's the call of Cthulhu. But you can find references in Led Zeppelin. You can find references surely in Black Sabbath, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, for example, is a direct reference to Lovecraft. There even was a band called Lovecraft. Um, I must confess to not having ever heard them, but I think it's um, 70s prog kind of stuff. But The Call of Cthulhu, the great towering instrumental on Ride the Lightning with Cliff Burton's bass howling underneath, seeming to dredge up the spirit of Yog sothoth quite dramatically, would probably be most people's introduction to the name Cthulhu. Um, but I guess it would be the thing that should not be on Master of Puppets, which gives our first lyrical nod to the world of Lovecraft from the mind of a young Hetfield. And it was not he alone whose mind was bent out of shape by the writings of Lovecraft. Um, all the way, of course, to modern bands. I mean, the list is endless. Sulfur Aeon dedicating entire albums to his world's Deicide, Vader, Massacre. Um, look, the list is really endless. And maybe I'll put up some links if you're watching on YouTube to some of the best songs. Even I've written my own tomes to Lovecraft. But the thing that should not be is perhaps the most famous, the most famous um, dedication to the horror of Lovecraft. So let us just take a look at those lyrics by a young Mr. Hetfield. Messenger of fear in sight, dark deception kills the light. 
Hybrid children watch the sea, pray for father roaming free. Fearless wretch, insanity, he watches lurking beneath the sea. Great old one, forbidden sight, he searches. Hunter of the shadows is rising. Immortal, in madness you dwell. I myself actually wrote a song with Dread Sovereign called Cthulhu Opiate Haze. I suppose it had been long in my subconscious to try and write something with a Cthulhu in the title. Um, and I was really using the lexicon of Lovecraftian, which is a phrase we'll get into, horror for the prism of psychotropics, the things you see, the angles beyond the angles. If you've ever done or dabbled in a few of those, you will know what I mean. And it felt somehow like something I should do as a teen obsessed with Lovecraft that I should write something in his honour. But you can feel the dread in the lyrics even of Hetfield there. And I'm going to keep referencing um, a few heavy metal lyrics here and there. I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band, right? On my wall behind me is a framed painting of Lovecraft staring down at me. His odd, gaunt face um, seems to speak to the horrors that were within his mind. Um... It's unusual, but maybe about a decade or more ago, I was rambling in an old vintage store in uh, Seattle, left to my own devices to explore a rainy and grey city for a few days, um, which, in truth, felt very much like Ireland on some level. At least, standing on the shore of the lake with sideways rain lashing into you and grey skies on the horizon, I thought to myself, well, isn't this a busman's holiday? Haven't I come to a home away from home? And yep, the sort of miserable beaten down air of some of the faces and the people in the city as they trudged their way through the morning grey horizontal rain reminded me of the same trips that you take in a Dublin or pick a Galway or pick any city anyway. I digress. Um, and I went to this incredible vintage store um, spread out on loads of different levels with um, each alcove sort of dedicated to a different era, to a different year, to maybe a different old movie star, to a different um, kind of fashion or whatever from the 1920s. Really fascinating. And in it, I found a huge illustrated old anthology of Lovecraft. Um, I had some of the old books. Well, no, I'm not the old, old books, of course, but the, I guess the reprints from um, in the 1980s or whatever that were quite popular in all the old um, science fiction shops. Um, you may know the name The Alchemist's Head from uh, the Primordial album. I think it's um, Where Greater Men Have Fallen. Well, this is a nod to an old um, sort of, I won't call it an occult bookstore, but certainly an unusual bookstore that existed in Ireland back in the 1980s called The Alchemist's Head. Um, which is a sort of a little in nod to anyone who might get the reference. But they were popular back then. And that was where you picked up those first Lovecraft novels, um, Haunter of the Dark or Dagon, for example. And um, I came across this huge illustrated anthology of Lovecraft and it had been a long, long time since I read any. Um, I readily would admit that in my late 20s, it's mostly been, uh, well, my late 20s, which I am not in anymore. And... Um, moving forward into my 30s and into my 40s, it's mostly been uh, politics that I have been um, taking in. Biographies, history books that I've been consuming. And I'll be honest with you, fiction has been uh, rather sort of held at bay from my grey matter during that time. 
Um, a predictably male move, apparently, to kind of move away from fiction and more towards factual writing. I don't know. That's what I read somewhere or other on a bathroom wall somewhere. But my reading lists, bar the odd piece of Bulgakov or Herman Hesse or something like this, were mainly, mainly fiction. But once upon a time as a teenager, um, Lovecraft would have been something of a minor obsession. Um, and I spent hours, days mulling over the, 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 the sort of dreadful cities and worlds that he conjured. And I bought this huge anthology um, and thought to myself, right, I'm going to get stuck in. I have three days in Seattle. Let's take this to the nearest coffee shop and let's get stuck into it. Let's reignite the, the you know, the fires of Yogg-Sothoth that had been dormant in my soul since my teenage years. And I must admit, I found it hard reading. Maybe it was maybe it was something best left to my teenage imagination. Um, but I found it a little overwrought, overwritten, a bit too dripping in description for somebody who'd been only taking in historical political facts for the previous 10 years or so. Um, a bit weighed down and I had to take a step back and consider what it was about Lovecraft that I'd loved so much. And I analysed that I'd sort of maybe lost the key, lost the love of language somewhere. Um, I'd become so used to consuming information and information about battles from 1847 or factual context that I'd left that part of my imagination. It felt as I said, on a dusty shelf somewhere in another house at the top of some dusty steep stairs in some remote American gothic four-story wooden house. You get the picture. You've seen American Horror Story or whatever you want, which, let's be honest, is more pure Lovecraft. So I left it alone. I read his letters, um, uh, of which he was purported to have written 100,000 almost, which puts him second only to Voltaire, as one of the greatest letter writers in the history of the human race. Um, I read up about him. I read about his personal life, examined his politics, which I'll get into. Um, as in 2021, where everything is politicised and re-examined through a modern lens, whether we are like it or not, I felt obliged to take their look at that as well. And he was on my short list of names that I wanted to do as a heavy metal hero, whether it was Alistair Crowley or Anton LaVey, whoever... But in reality, it should have been Lovecraft first. But the huge, the huge book, um, which I'm looking at now, which, um, which, let's be honest, is a whopping, how many pages? Let me look at this. 900 pages um, of Lovecraft. You can hear the pages turning right there. Um and on the back, Lovecraft opened the way for me, as he had done for others before me, quote, Stephen King. Well, I mean, Stephen King may have a different resonance now, but at one time he was the greatest selling um, author in the world, bar none, who owed his debt to H.P. Lovecraft. Anyway, I digress. This huge text was leering down at me and I picked it up a week ago and started to read once again. And found, thankfully, that somewhere in my subconscious, maybe we can thank the emergency, whatever. But um, my love for it was reignited. And I thought, well, God damn it, Howard, if I don't have to do an Agitators Anonymous about you. So <clears throat> you have heard the first paragraph of Dagon, which oddly enough was the first story that he wrote. So let's go back and look at the peculiar rather sad and um, strange life of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. 
Crawling chaos underground, cultures summon twisted sound, out from ruins once possessed, fallen city living death. Fearless wretch insanity, he watches, lurking beneath the sea. Timeless sleep has been upset. He awakens, hunter of the shadows is rising. Immortal in madness you dwell. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on August the 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island, US and A. To quite a rich family, his father. Um, he was born, uh, you know, to, um, wasn't born into poverty, although that became quite the symbol of most of his adult life. But he was born to a relatively rich family. Um, his father was committed to an asylum at the age of three, driven mad with syphilis. A little bit like our previous heavy metal hero, homeboy, Mr. Frederick Nietzsche, who spent 10 years in an asylum, um, retching with the pain of syphilis that had, was slowly driving him mad also. Um, but Howard Phillips Lovecraft was never to see his father ever again. And this removal of a father figure on many levels, I think, set the tone for his complex, difficult and dark relationship with his mother and many of the um, women in his life subsequently and he was never to be seen by the young Lovecraft again he and his mother Sarah however were taken in by his grandfather the fantastically named Whipple Van Buren Phillips um, who as you may imagine had a moustache to match that name fantastic name you can't really beat that can you Whipple um Right here, right now, let's try and start some sort of um, online petition to get the name Whipple reintroduced to the public vernacular. Um, a as a child, he was very obviously, I mean, obviously by his writing, bright and intelligent. But I suppose what we could call a sickly child, constantly beset by maladies, which I suppose is an interesting word, a malady. I guess, was something in the Victorian age they would have called a sickness of which they did not know, which was most sicknesses, um, before the discovery, really, of germs and or... Anyway, look, I'm not going to get into that because it has some resonance with the situation that we're in right now, right? Okay, so, Mr. Lovecraft... Mr. Lovecraft? The young Lovecraft was beset by melodies, haunted by intense night terrors. Um, he barely attended school, it, it was said, which I find difficult to quite comprehend seeing as he was so learned with words. But he seemed to miss some schooling, um, but seems also to have been able to work his way through his grandfather Whipple's immense library throughout his formative and early teenage years. Um, I don't know if you've ever been a kid and decided you wanted to do like a little magazine um, or um, you're going to go, I'm going to write a magazine about football or music or whatever. Um, I did start doing a fanzine when I was uh, a little kid of about 11 or 12, drawing little pictures of Iron Maiden and writing reviews and going, I could make a little Iron Maiden fanzine. However, our Howard, um, at the age of eight, it was said, was editing his own magazine about science and geology, declaring himself um, a little small atheist, as the story goes. However... One of the greatest upheavals in his life and one that set him further on an even more maddening, dark and isolated path was about to happen. Suddenly in 1904, 
Whipple died. And Whipple, I suppose, represents one of the only, um, I suppose, male characters of authority in Lovecraft's life who provided him with a little bit of stability, something of a father figure, supposed to be quite the um, the arduous taskmaster and relative disciplinarian, but provided um, a young Lovecraft with uh, something of a moral backbone, perhaps we could say. And we can pinpoint this as, well, one of the most pivotal moments in his life. And he, his mother, he and his mother um, maybe succumbed to another form of madness. Madness is a word you often here um, invoked when people talk about Lovecraft and you decide as we begin to talk about him a bit further whether he really was mad or not. It would seem though that our boy Whipple had mismanaged the family finances and Howard Howard and his mother were uh, subsequently evicted and moved into a very small cramped apartment together which again will become a theme of um, Lovecraft's life um, a very small apartment in Rhode Island. At 18, Lovecraft suffered a massive nervous breakdown. Unable to finish school or attend college um, and really to take part in social society in any broader terms, um, this suicidal teenager contemplated throwing himself in the river and more or less became a recluse, a teenage recluse. Um, there are many echoes throughout the Lovecraft story that somehow feel very similar to some of the things we hear now about teenagers who have become um, isolated because of social media or reclusive because of, you know, ending up being a slave to the this sort of internal algorithm of social media, which separates them from their peer groups. I don't know, there's something oddly resonant about Lovecraft's um, struggles and tribulations that seem resonant in the modern age, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep... I'll keep prying at that to see if I can open that door. Um, he be- more or less became a recluse, living with his mother, reading pulp science fiction magazines and wandering Rhode Island, taking long jaunts in the countryside through the forest there. Um, I've never personally actually been in Rhode Island, so I don't have much of a sense of it, although anyone who's been there has told me that it's kind of one of the centres of the original American Gothic sort of uh, ideal or that you can find these sort of creepy upstate, thin, tall, wooden buildings that seem to um, have a sense of the old or whatever you would, you would, you would want to call that. Um, it seemed to be a sort of, a kind of a, the place that you could imagine inspiring a young Lovecraft. And so he has his nervous breakdown um, amidst this strenuous relationship with a maternal figure isolation, living apart from society are all hallmarks, hallmarks, oddly enough, of many of the lives of serial killers I've been reading or watching a lot about lately. Um, And certainly Lovecraft shares many similarities for five whole years. And for five whole years, he more or less deals with his overbearing mother um, alone, um, living in a relative poverty and isolation with her. He seems absolutely friendless. Um... And something of a, I suppose, a wretched creature, one must say. Certainly this period of Lovecraft's life sounds um, utterly depressing and he seems beyond even what we call the archetypal loner. Um, A stunted childhood, an overbearing mother, from relative wealth to poverty. Um, And reading reading about his life, you really feel it could have gone either way. I mean, like I said, he, he did end up in an early grave, which we will, of course, 
dig up soon enough. But you feel without some kind of intervention that he might have even left this mortal coil a little earlier. Uh, to call him gloomy <laughs> would be an understatement. A, a proto-goth would, be far, would not be far from the truth. Somehow I can picture him in some dingy bedsit on the outskirts of Manchester in 84, smoking endless cigarettes, staring at the windows, listening to the Smiths or maybe pornography by The Cure, watching daytime TV and waiting for his £15 gyro on a Friday to have a pint in some lonely old man's pub. I don't know. I don't know. Apologies, Mr Lovecraft, if that was a little bit too modern for you, but Lovecraft seemed to... He seemed also to love to torture himself. Um, As well as reading his pulp magazines, he read The Argosy, which is a sort of romance novel series edited by a one Fred Jackson. And oddly enough, this man may prove to be one of the most pivotal, um, the pivotal uh, characters in the life of Lovecraft. So Lovecraft seems to have been so incensed by this trashy, pulpy, romantic novel um, that he started to basically troll the editor. I mean, there's no other real word for it. And in um, a sort of weird obsession, he wrote Jackson endless slew of letters in the year 1913, uh, slagging off his magazine in rhyming couplets for no real apparent reason. Um, And this would be, as I said, the life of Lovecraft. He wrote many, many letters. He wrote thousands and thousands, as I said, nearly 100,000. But we'll get to that. And somehow, somewhere or other, this... Jackson character it would seem was rather amused um, as opposed to being offended um, and he showed them to the head of the UAPA the United Amateur Press Association a man called Dars now this is all a bit strange but through hook or by crook this Dars character it would seem was also mildly titillated somewhat amused by the rhyming couplets of Lovecraft and um offered him a job, offered the young Lovecraft a job writing, editing, essays, articles, um, just working for him uh, as part of the United Amateur Press Association, if I'm not incorrect. And this, it could be arguably said, saved his life, at least at that moment in time. He took to his work with, it was said, astounding and exacting dexterity and obsessiveness, which you say, as you can imagine, was entirely expected. And he even made some... Friends, not dead, which eternal lie, stranger eons, death may die. Drain you of your sanity, face the thing that should not be. So, our boy Lovecraft makes a few friends, a painfully shy and retiring man, there is no doubt, but according to his acquaintances, not without a shy warmth. Um, At 27... In 1917, he wrote his first science fiction story called Dagon, which I read the first paragraph at the top of the podcast, about a shipwrecked sailor upon an island filled with the dreadful ruins of an ancient civilization. And this is where the Lovecraft that we know, the author, was born. Um, This is his first story. And it's really worth... You'll find it online. It's pretty easy to find to read or... Um, an audio version of it, but it's worth, it's definitely worth um, picking up because you can see within it the, st- the, the what shall we say, the, 
the genesis of a face that launched a thousand ships, the sort of progenitor of almost all of the occult and science fiction horror to follow. And it would seem that he was the, um, you know, the heir in waiting of a Edgar Allan Poe, for example. However, as is the common theme throughout Lovecraft's life, just as things start to or seem to get a bit better, they then take many steps backwards. And in 1919, his mother suffers a complete nervous breakdown and is committed to the same asylum that his father died in. Um, And at this point, we may look at the idea that there was some mental illness within his family. Um, And it also would appear that this institution is the inspiration for the Arkham Asylum, the Arkham invention that Lovecraft goes on to write about in future years. And sure enough, she dies in 1921. Um, Lovecraft is taken in by his aunt or aunts. And you see again, he lives in a small apartment with his aunts. And you see again the proliferation of female figures throughout Lovecraft's life. He seems oddly dependent on their charity, but in his own way, never, never really creates loving bonds with any of them, if we can say that. Um, And as I gather, from what I remember, there is no female um, character with a singular voice in any of his stories. I don't remember that there is any. And I remember reading that before. No female character has a first person voice. Um, Was he a misogynist? I would doubt that. But certainly his relationships with women only come in the form of stiff upper lipped relatives upon whom he seems dependent for a roof roof over his head. But, and then but, as his life lurches from mild optimism to tragedy, he then actually meets a woman. Um, Her name is Sonia Haft Green, a wealthy, uh, I'm not sure if she was a milliner or a hat store owner. A milliner is someone who makes hats, I think. A half Jewish Russian emigre with connections again to the uh, UAPA. And who knew her and Howard Lovecraft hit it off and on March the 3rd 1924 he marries her and when you think of where his life was only a few years earlier this is a remarkable turnaround but again tragedy uh, and destitution seem always just around the corner when it comes to uh, Lovecraft and he moves to New York with this woman Um, there's quite a lot of stories about Lovecraft being gay that he was never married that he hated women that he died a virgin All kinds of what we can call, I guess now, fake news, fake news stories, rumours that just gathered a slow head of steam that in the internet age just get proliferated. Um, But certainly when discussing his life and trying to put context on the what, where and whys of his life, people make assumptions. Um, I've told casual fans or people, of course, who know who he is um, and sometime readers that, well, well, you know, he was married. And it's often greeted with raised eyebrows because they go, what? No, I don't think he... They, because people assume, they just assume somehow because of um, the reputation that they've heard third, fourth, fifth hand, or maybe they don't even know where they've heard it before that they assume that Lovecraft was the eternal virginal misogynist. But this is not true. He was married and he moved and lived in New York. Um, I, guess it's, I guess it's because of the last 10 years of social media derangement, as I keep on saying. But a section of the sci-fi horror online writing community has been trying to sort of paint him as a racist incel. But I'll get into that also. Back to our timeline. In 1924, 
the 34-year-old Lovecraft is living in New York, married to a wealthy, successful woman, and his stories are being printed in Weird Tales magazine, the actual pulp magazine he grew up reading. Um, And this seems to have been his ambition, his dream. Um, Things are looking up. He has 12 years to live. But as you may have guessed it, nothing positive really lasts for long in the world of Lovecraft. Um, By Christmas of 1924... The couple are broke. Sonia's hat business has gone bust and she leaves to work in Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. And that was the last time Howard Phillips Lovecraft would ever see his wife. Um, he's left alone and living in a small apartment in, a apartment in the Red Hook area of New York and he grew to hate the place. Now, I suppose here is where um, I've got to get into some of the uh, debates, the modern debates about his politics. It sort of pains me that this might end up having more words than the analysis of his writing. But you can go and find his writing and do your own analysis of the form of horror and science fiction. And it took um, and decide for yourself. But this is really just a kind of a look at his life, more or less, um, and what's behind the writing. But. You can't really, I think, talk about him now without addressing some of these things. So this is where we get to the is Lovecraft a racist or not conversation. Um, You've no doubt, if you're interested or mildly interested, seen a lot of online commentators from both sides trying to redress the balance. Um, Some people trying to put context on it. Um, And many modern science fiction horror talking heads trying to call Lovecraft a racist. Have him on some level cancelled even. Um, have his name taken from conventions, from awards, have his statues removed, the usual kind of thing that um, is a hallmark of um, culture and society in this the last couple of years. Um, My opinion, my observation is, and I will say this about anyone from history, is context, context, context. Context is everything, even though we're told it isn't. Judging anyone from the past, taking them out of our time, taking them out of their time, I think, is disingenuous to the argument. It fits a certain modern narrative. But again, the context of the time, the prevailing sentiment of the time, the politics of the day um, are of utmost importance. Before we even get into the nuances of the person, there's no doubt Lovecraft wrote some very, very, very angry, scathing, and I would say xenophobic letters. Um, He also edited a pamphlet called The Conservative, which you can find also online, which is worth a look. Um, and he no doubt hated the area he lived in. He really railed against the multiculturalism in the Red Hook area and abounded, it must be said, with anti-Semitic sentiment. Yet he was married to a woman who was half Jewish, had friends who were Jewish, and even had patrons and supporters who were Jewish. So what's the truth really about this? It's very hard to say. Obviously, this is 120 years ago. Um, was he actually a racist? I would contend not, some would contend so, but I would say this in context, or to contextualise, he was a very maladjusted, dark, depressed loner who had just lost the only woman he ever knew intimately, lived in a tiny apartment in poverty. His writing career, at least creatively, was on the skids. Um, He had, um, people don't realise this, um, was that he was never widely read while he was alive, respected or even made a penny from the stories we know so well when he was alive. Um, I picture him as an insular, repressed misanthrope, a genuine misanthrope, um, who was venting his spleen in the only way he knew in letters, like I said, of which he wrote 100,000. 
And so somehow in my head, he's like a sort of goth taxi driver character, venting and ranting his spleen. Um, does that make him politically a racist? I would contend not. Um, of course, you know, you may disagree. Um, there is no doubt, but there is no doubt that some of his words and rhetoric are about as angry, as vehement as it can get. But if we put it into context of um, his life and where he was at that moment in time, um, his life as a lonely outsider, angry outsider, we get some understanding of the complex inner rage of the man. Personally, <clears throat> like I said, the politics of an artist throughout the ages are not the prism from which to judge their art or else we can write off thousands of artists from Francis Bacon to John Lennon or whoever else to many others um, who had what we deem questionable, questionable ethics or ideals but also our modern rush to take every statement on face value um, is somewhat incongruous, somewhat damning and somewhat anti-intellectual and even if they are 120 years old or 250 years old it's a product, I think, of living in an instant society where everything and everyone is watching what they say and judged thusly. Judging Lovecraft the same way, you know, the, the, a Twitter mob were to judge someone's you know, Twitter history is, in my opinion, a fool's errand, although many wish to do so. Um, it's complicated. It's complicated. To me, Lovecraft is an angry, depressed, impoverished, repressed misanthrope, as I said, lashing out at the world through letters. Um, an actual card-carrying racist? I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, anyway. Certainly you could read into his work perhaps something of the otherness of being a man out of the culture around him. The themes of alienation are strong. Not to mention the recurring ideas of an alien force, power, a monster, or beast taking over the space his lonely, his often lonely characters inhabit run through many of, his, many of these stories. Um, are these allegories, allegories for migration, race, or religion? Again, it's hard to say. If you look for ghosts hard enough, you'll probably see them, right? I don't know. It's very hard to say because maybe they are just stories about monsters and alien worlds and nightmare scenarios. Anyway, in 1926, he wrote to his two aunts who lived back in Rhode Island. Um, he lived with before asking them for help. He returned to Providence. And in 1926, despite losing the woman, the only woman that he loved, etc., um, he left the New York that he hated so much and thus began his most prolific period. He created the Cthulhu mythos in this year, the story of elder gods hiding in the depths of the ocean, waiting for the moment to rise from the depths and take over the earth. Ningizada, open my eyes, Ningizada, hear my cries, plume serpent of the deep, plume serpent of the gate. I command, come before me, I command, bring the key. Rise from the depth, see the fire of my wand. Ia, Ia, Saka, Ia, Saka, Ia, Shazul. You know that one, right? Lord of all fevers and plagues, morbid angel. The list is endless of the lyrics and bands that he influenced. And he is just on the cusp of creating the Necronomicon, the world of the Necronomicon, the Cthulhu mythos. I could even do another podcast just about the Necronomicon itself, the fictional grimoire he created. Um, anyway, let's maybe leave that a little bit to the end. But Lovecraft creates the Cthulhu mythos and encourages other writers to write within that mythology. He creates the, the world and then 
basically leaves it out there and goes, you, right within that world. And it captured the imagination of his supporters, people like Robert E. Howard, who created Conan the Barbarian, obviously, um, August Derleth, who will become very important to the whole story. The mythos became an umbrella under which others could write, attempting to enter the world of Lovecraft. And over the next four years, he would write many of what would become his most famous stories, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Charles Dexter Ward, The Case of, Mountains of Madness, which is a personal favourite of mine. And nothing of the like had really been read before. And this was something of something new in the terrain of science fiction, beyond the scope of the pulp magazines that had influenced him. Needless to say, sadly, no one really paid attention or read them. And the 1930s would prove to be some of the darkest years for Lovecraft, despite them being some of his most creative. But, as we have established... Tragedy is just around the corner. In 1932, his aunt died, and this would seem to have spelled the end for Lovecraft. Uh, once again, he finds himself living with another, with his other aunt, an elderly fam- family female relative in a tiny apartment in crushing poverty. Living with his surviving aunt, his stories were not selling. And it seems a stubborn and sickly Lovecraft would not ghostwrite or lower his standards or try and dilute what he was writing. Um... There are sad and depressing stories of him scavenging and scouring for food at the time, eating what he could, when he could, which, you know, is so sad, really, when you think about what an influence he became after he was dead. Between 1933 and 1936, though, he wrote no new stories, a handful of poems. And in 1935, Lovecraft riddled with what he called the grip with an E. A uh, good name for a band, by the way, if somebody wants to use that. Riddled with a disease he called the grip, which was in reality cancer. Um, lanced with intestinal tumours and in constant pain. Um, Lovecraft was, shall we say, um, crawling towards the end of his years. And that same year, his letter writing companion, and let's call him, um, I suppose, kindred spirit, Robert E. Howard, shot himself in the head. Um, and on March the 10th, 1937, Lovecraft admitted himself to hospital. And on the 15th, five days later, he died penniless and alone. And this is where, well, let's just take a moment to consider that. How many great artists from the past, um, great authors, great musicians have died penniless and alone? And it seems such a sad thing to know that they went to their graves without ever knowing any of the things that happened after their deaths, um, the the reemergence of their career, the fact that millions of people um, went on to read Lovecraft at the in the latter half of the twentieth century, it's always almost as if um, cult, it took culture thirty or forty years to catch up to him. And I'll get into that. But so many artists end up penniless and alone, um, and it is sad and it's very striking that Lovecraft would be. Um, it's no joke to say that he really, um, really exemplified this. However, the name August Derleth becomes important right here. Um, not particularly a great writer in his own, uh, in, in respect um, to his own creativity, but he kept, let's say, the flame lit and it would seem somehow swore some kind of oath to keep publishing Lovecraft. Um, and he set up Arkham House Printing uh, printing house and despite again no one really being interested kept pressing editions of the stories and books um, but and if you have some of those they're worth a pretty penny I would imagine but post World War II the world began to change 
um, culture began to change, society began to change, young people began to change. And the counterculture that grew around the idea of the teenager, let's say, or the idea of a post-Second War society that um, had other interests than just work and surviving and family, i.e. they had leisure time, they had other activities. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a fatuous connection, but it seems that society was about to catch up to the writing of Lovecraft. Um, and as we move into the 1950s, um, the counterculture began to take pace, let's call it that, and begin to gain, and it began to move against the staid nature of uh, of society and the society that Lovecraft grew up in and wrote about. Horror movies began to be made. Science fiction began to become um, much bigger. You look at all of the early writers, the Isaac, Isaac Asimov's of this world, or science fiction began to really take um, a hold of the public consciousness. The the you know the the moon landing was coming in the next decade. Um, and the 1960s was to bring an interest in the occult and horror and science fiction. It all began to have a huge cultural resurgence. And for some reason, um, Derleth had commissioned European translations of Lovecraft. And lo and behold, the French began to read Lovecraft in the 1950s. And this is where he became the most popular. And Europe and many countries saw him as the successor, the literary successor to Poe. And as counterculture grew, so did its presence within the canon of the new occult. In the late 60s and early 70s, you felt a shadow behind The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, um, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, the dark arts. Shall we call it the dark art of the arts had seeped into the mainstream. And Lovecraft's name came in hushed tones on the wind. On the wind? Yeah, Okay. well, that's maybe an an overreach by my poor grammar. And back into the public consciousness loomed Cthulhu um, and Yog sothoth And finally, he began to get the recognition he deserved. The books began to come back into print. They began to sell. You have Stephen King, the, the world's most popular author in the late 70s, early to mid 80s, banging the drum constantly, saying that his inspiration was, without a doubt, H.P. Lovecraft. And of course... His name um, became riven through the world of heavy metal like a, I don't know, like something in a stick of rock. God, stick of rock, metal, yep. I'm on form today. From Metallica to Morbid Angel to Deicide to Vader to Massacre to um, every band, Death, whatever you want to mention. Um, And it's still felt. Um, Personally, I would say um, in a modern reflection, it's the best living example now is maybe through the work of Guillermo Guillermo del Toro the Spanish movie director. Pan's Labyrinth, for example, is hugely Lovecraftian in its in its um, expression. Um, and he would say, I would say he's one of the best living examples of something that, that you would call Lovecraftian. And so, Lovecraft, a true man out of time, a genuine outsider. And when we look for the progenitor, the originator, the original of the species, then Lovecraft is it. The nightmare worlds of unspeakable horror were new depths for the time and still astound and abound and recently have astounded and abounded me. And I would um, I would advise going and uncovering some of them and taking a look. Um, You want the real deal, as they say, sounds like a cliche, which is which is what I want to to write about darkness. Um, What can we say when you hear somebody write or sing about darkness, you want to know that it's within them. You want to know that they are exercising some form, some form of demon, or they're trying to deal with this within them, and um, 
you don't want something fake. Um, you want the real. When you hear a band sing about rock and roll, you want to know that they've lived it. Um, and Lovecraft is the, it would seem to me, the embodiment of um, living the ideal of what you're writing, as we say, dealing with those inner demons and that inner darkness. And there's something grimly bone chilling about the spectre of Lovecraft, even looking at him now, looking over my shoulder at the, at the framed picture of him hanging on my wall. Um, and it speaks volumes to those who want art made by actual artists, not pretenders. And Lovecraft certainly was one of them. So this podcast is really as I said, with these kind of things, I'm trying to look at the life behind the writing or behind, um, you know, kind of the getting more in touch with the, the timeline of the of the person behind the writing. You can go and read Lovecraft for yourself. You can go and listen to The Thing That Should Not Be, which I would recommend. You can um, you can put on Evil Dead. You know, for example, I was going to mention the Necronomicon, but this is quite incredible. The fictional grimoire that he created out of nowhere that people are still confused as to whether it's real or not. The mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred um, who translated this in the 8th century and it was the cursed book that reading it sent you mad. Al, you know, in the lyrics of Merciful Fate, it's it's Evil Dead. The book, the movie Evil Dead, of course, is based on this book. Um, and the list is endless. It's endless. Um, and so it's been actually... Uh, something of a, re a revelation to go back again and read Lovecraft maybe with new eyes, a new sort of prism of understanding that maybe my uh, super political um, clouded mindset was 10 or 15 years ago. And I would recommend that you go and do it because um, he's a true heavy metal hero. Um, there's a lot of darkness in there, so get stuck into it. Agitators Anonymous episode 81 is a pilgrimage and a tome to Howard Phillips Lovecraft that which is not dead eternal lie with stranger eons even death may die a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.